0: Support for Yale Cancer Answers comes from AstraZeneca, working to change how cancer is treated with personalized medicine. Learn more at AstraZeneca-US.com. Welcome to Yale Cancer Answers with Drs. Anish Chagpar and Stephen Gore. Yale Cancer Answers features the latest information on cancer care by welcoming oncologists and specialists who are on the forefront of the battle to fight cancer. This week, it's a conversation with Christine Frisbee of the Richard D. Frisbee III Foundation, founded in memory of her son, Rich. Dr. Chagpar is a professor of surgery at the Yale School of Medicine.
1: So, Christine, maybe you can start by telling us the story from the very beginning. How
2: did did your journey here start? Well, in September of 1988, our son, Rich, was feeling sick, and we ended up bringing him up to Yale on advice from the pediatrician, and he was diagnosed with leukemia. He was 14 years old, and he was uh, treated here by uh, Dr. Diana Beardsley, who was a pediatric hematologist at t- at the time. And uh, he didn't do well with his chemotherapy, and they decided he needed a bone marrow transplant. So after he had three rounds of induction chemotherapy, he finally went into a remission. And Joel Rappaport and his team had come down from Boston to start the bone marrow transplant unit at Yale, and he was the first child to have a transplant at Yale in January of 89. Fortunately, after six months, he relapsed, and he never got well again, and he passed away in December of 89. So that was our journey of um, coming to Yale and knowing Yale, et cetera.
1: I'm so sorry to hear that. Um, tell me a little bit more. I mean, your son's 14 years old when he was initially diagnosed. You said that he didn't feel well, and you took him to the pediatrician. Tell us more about what you meant. What, what kind of symptoms was he having?
2: Well, um, he had been away at a camp, an outward-bound type of camp, uh, the summer before. And um, when he came home from camp, he was acting very tired, and I just assumed it was because of this rigorous camp. And he started at New Canaan High School as a freshman, and after a couple of weeks, he came home and he sat down and he cried to me, which he never Did over things. And he said, I couldn't run down the field today at soccer and I failed a French test and I just have no energy. So I said, Well, stay home tomorrow and catch up on your rest. You're just tired. So he stayed home, but by the middle of the day, he said to me, I feel faint. And I said, I don't like faint. Let's go to the doctors. And um, Dr. Flynn in New Canaan was um, our pediatrician and he did tests and at the end of the test, he said, call me tonight. I don't care what time it is, just call me this evening. So we called him. And he said, you have an appointment at Yale in the morning. Um, It's something serious. Oh, my gosh. So that was sort of it. So it was just a simple complaining of running down the field and not being able to do it and feeling weak. But months before, he had been very achy. It was on and off. So it was hard to diagnose as a parent that something was that serious. I just thought he was literally having growing pains.
1: Yeah. I mean, because certainly, I mean, kids get tired, kids get achy. Exactly. And, you know, all of a sudden, you kind of take them to the pediatrician and they do a simple blood test. And next thing you know, you're at the Yale Hematology Clinic.
2: That's exactly what happened. Yes. And so... I can
1: imagine that that was rather shocking. And so when you arrived at Yale that first time and you met with the hematologist, what did they say, what was that like, and what were the next steps that they did in making the diagnosis?
2: Well, Diana Beardsley has since passed away. Anyone who knew her, she was a lovely, charming, warm person. And after they did a bone marrow aspiration, Um, and confirmed that it was leukemia they came out and told us but what I heard was maybe it's leukemia and they said, well, put him in the room upstairs on the seventh floor of the hospital. So they brought him up, and the nurse came out, and she said, we're starting chemotherapy right away. And I said, no, 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 no. We, we, we're not really sure what it is. Please don't start anything so intense like that. And she goes, no, we know. So there was this mass parental confusion as to what we were hearing, how intense it was. We knew leukemia was serious, but we didn't know really that it was a blood-related cancer. And uh, what the prognosis was or what the treatment was, it all seemed to happen within a flash. So within hours of us stepping through the doors, as I wrote a story once about the electric drawers closing behind us in the emergency room within a matter of hours he was in the hospital for a long time Mm -hmm.
1: and so so you go to the hematologist they say okay we're we need to do a bone marrow biopsy and then what you heard was maybe it's leukemia but what it really was was leukemia and I can imagine how that must have felt And so when they started chemotherapy, what was that like for your
2: son? And what was that like for you? Well, the first thing that Rich said, actually, is, I have cancer. Am I dying? Because they told him, because he was a teenager. And I said, no, 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 You're not dying. They can cure this kind of leukemia now. And it was a back and forth of a very intense type of conversation that you never think you're going to have with your child, of discussing the intensity of treatment, whether they're going to live, how long it's going to take, what your chances are of living. It was, a, as I said, nobody prepares you for having those discussions and um, thinking the thoughts that you think. I remember getting on the payphone and calling my mother in New Jersey. And saying, I, th- I need another opinion. I mean, I can't just make this decision this fast. How do I know that these doctors are good? How do I know I can trust them? How do I know we're not making a mistake? Right. What did she say? She said, I understand. She said, let's try to see who else can answer some questions. And I did get the name of another doctor in New Jersey. And the doctor said... You're in very good hands. I know the doctor who's taking care of your son. She's one of the best. I think you have to trust them. And so you got the second opinion,
1: and it was leukemia, and your son started chemotherapy. Yes. What was that like for him in terms of chemotherapy and losing his hair? And suddenly the diagnosis must have become
2: real it was real uh, to him he was a quite a mature 14 year old and he was very nervous even as an adult, it doesn't seem important, but to him, losing his hair was one of the most serious things that could have happened to him. And when he started the chemotherapy, he was very sick. They didn't have the same kind of a medics that they have now to prevent you from getting sick. He was very, very sick all the time, taking especially the induction chemotherapy, which is the very strong kind, um, to stop the cancer from growing. And um, we were battling his depression because he was very anemic, battling the reality that he was going to feel sick to his stomach for a long time, and that his hair was falling out, and he didn't like that at all. And eventually, he had some of his friends come up from New Canaan High School to visit him. And he was very embarrassed by the way he looked. And it was, he was a private child. And it was very hard for kids to come from the high school and see him in that state when he was kind of getting this macho feel about him.
1: Yeah. I mean, I was about to say that when you're 14 and you're just, you know, you're at high school and you've got your social circles and you're learning how to drive and you've got your plans on who you're going to take to the prom and what you're going to do for college, and then cancer strikes.
2: And, you know, he never went back to school. It all became so intense. Some friends would come up to see him, but when he would go home, we had to be so careful because his immune system was so compromised. But a lot of kids came over. It was very nice. And, you know, they were a special group of kids. They ran a fundraiser to raise money for childhood cancer at the high school. They wrote articles in the school paper about him. It was really An amazing thing to see because you don't really feel that children are able to separate themselves from their everyday life and devote it to a friend who's really feeling very sick.
1: Yeah. And so he got a little bit better, right, with the chemotherapy and went into remission. And that must have been – did you did you kind of feel at that time like, okay, the chemotherapy did its job. Now let's get back to life. Or what was that like? Or was there still this sense of any minute the second shoe could drop?
2: Well, we were told st- – Early on, after he went through the second round of induction chemo and he didn't go into a remission, that he'd have to go into a third induction round, and therefore, if they could get him in, that he would have to have a bone marrow transplant. So we began um, typing all of the rest of the siblings. He was uh, the second eldest of five, and the rest of the children and my husband and I were both typed to see if we would match him for the bone marrow process. And one of the children matched the fourth child, Meg. She was seven at the time. And uh, she was identified as the person who would take her marrow and give it to Rich. And then we felt like that was the cure. It was like the aspirin who was, that was going to cure him completely. We were elated. We just thought, oh, my goodness, this is the end now. We're going to do this transplant, and he'll be cured for life. So that was our attitude at the time. And thank God we had that respite of enthusiasm you know, to mm-hmm. carry us through because it's a long journey.
1: How did Meg feel about it, being seven years old and being asked to be a bone marrow donor for her older brother?
2: Well, she didn't know what it was going to really entail, so that was— good in a way um, because she did have to have bone marrow aspiration from her hips and it did end up being somewhat painful. But she was excited. She thought she was going to be the one who saved her brother and she was very enthusiastic and happy that she was the chosen one, so to speak.
1: Yeah. And How did you feel? I mean, certainly there was the elation of, okay, this could be the cure, but this was now the time when the bone marrow unit was just starting at Yale. And so was that somewhat, did that give you some trepidation that, you know, this was still novel at the time?
2: It was very novel, and you had to sign off on a protocol, a protocol being this is what we're going to do to your son. This is what the expectation is. These are the ramifications that can happen. And reading it was a very, very scary thing. And we didn't have anyone else really to talk to at the time. We were the only family undergoing the transplant, and the unit wasn't even finished. So he was transplanted in um, an adult room on the oncology floor. And... um, It was really such a scary experience when it happened because you're basically told that your child's going to have his immune system taken down to zero, and a new immune system is going to be infused. And the whole concept is a frightening one when you think about it. So we were very nervous the whole time. We were very excited when the marrow arrived from Meg and started dripping into Richie's veins, which knows how to go to your bone marrow. It's, it's an amazing medical procedure. But we were elated on the day, thinking this was it.
1: Yeah. Well, we're going to learn a lot more about what happened next after we take a short break for a medical minute. Please stay tuned to talk more with Christine Frisbee.
0: Support for Yale Cancer Answers comes from AstraZeneca, working to eliminate cancer as a cause of death. Learn more at AstraZeneca-US.com. This is a Medical Minute about genetic testing, which can be useful for people with certain types of cancer that seem to run in their families. Patients that are considered at risk receive genetic counseling and testing so informed medical decisions can be based on their own personal risk assessment. Resources for genetic counseling and testing are available at federally designated comprehensive cancer centers. Interdisciplinary teams include geneticists, genetic counselors, physicians, and nurses who work together to provide risk assessment and steps to prevent the development of cancer. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to Connecticut Public Radio.
1: Welcome back to Yale Cancer Answers. This is Dr. Anise Chagpar, and I'm joined tonight by my guest, Christine Frisby. We're talking about uh, the work that she's done with leukemia that really stemmed from the experience that her son had with this disease. So right before the break, Christine, we were at the point where you thought this was it yeah, he, Rich, your son, had a bone marrow transplant courtesy of Meg, your daughter, who ended up being a great donor, and and this happened, one of the, the first kids to be treated at Yale with a bone marrow transplant, and there was hope, and then what happened?
2: Well, six months after Rich had his transplant, we were on vacation in Cape Cod, so he got better and was healthy and able to take vacation.
1: And did he go back to school at that point? Or
2: No, he hadn't been back to school yet because after a transplant, you're so immune compromised for a long time that you can't be out in public. So you really have to be protected. He never went back to school. But we were able to take a trip to Cape Cod with great warning that everything had to be done just so, so he wouldn't get any germs or infections. So we were quite happy about that. And we took the trip um, to the Cape. And in the middle of July, he was due to come back for a visit, a checkup. So there was a flight, a puddle jumper, so to speak, uh, between Cape Cod and New Haven. So we flew back and um, went into the clinic. Everything seemed fine. And Rich, over the time, and I don't know if they would do it now, but they would let him go to the computer and look at his blood counts, Mm. and um, he went in and and um, took his visit and was trying to find his blood counts, but they wouldn't let him this time. And we went back to the Cape, and I called the doctor, and I said, Oh, how is he doing? How are his counts? And he said, Well, I have to call you a little later. All the counts aren't in. And so he called us a little later, and he said he's relapsed. And it just hit us so hard. I didn't know how uh, bad it was, but I was just—my heart just dropped knowing, here we go again. So we thought, okay, fine, we'll do more chemo, we'll do another bone marrow transplant. By this time, his sister Meg said, no, I'm not doing that again. She said, no way. I said, Meg, just be patient. Let's try to get him into a remission. So we had to bring him right back to the hospital. And he felt fine, though. It was just he his wasn't. Counts. Yeah, he wasn't complaining. He wasn't complaining at all. We even let him have a little private tennis lesson, and he would ride his bike up and down the street. He wouldn't mingle with people very much because that wasn't allowed. He wasn't supposed to be in the sun too much. But we let him do a few things to feel normal, to feel like a well person again. And uh, so it was a complete shock. It it was. And then um, the doctor kept saying, well, we'll try to get him into remission again. We'll try to get him into remission. And then one day I said to the doctor, how many people who relapse after a bone marrow transplant actually go into a remission again? And he said, well, Christine, I have to tell you, I haven't had any. And that was the night I knew he wouldn't make it. And so so you're left with this feeling
1: in the pit of your stomach like this is not going to end well. But you still had a little bit of hope that maybe, just maybe, he could end up in a remission and tried to convince Meg, his sister, who didn't really want to go through the whole bone marrow donation thing again, to go through it again.
2: Well, you you constantly um, went through that, but as they gave him more chemotherapy and went on and on, he would go and he would read his counts, and he knew he wasn't getting better. The cancer was winning. And then finally one day he said to me, Mom, am I going to make it? And we had all discussed that he wasn't, and we all knew it. And it was the question of, are you going to stop the chemotherapy? At what point do you stop it? You know, they begin to get pneumonia because they're so compromised. And so finally we had to decide not to start the chemo. And when they told him that, he said, I'm dying, aren't I? And I said, yes, you are.
1: Oh, my gosh.
2: What was that conversation like? It was so hard and I just tried to be strong for him because he said the next thing he said well what happens when I die where do I go and I said the angels are going to come down from heaven and take you and you'll go up to heaven yeah and I'll be here with you the whole time until you go
1: and was he
2: at peace with that Or was that
1: still incredibly
2: scary? He talked about it. We're quite a religious family, but of course you never think you're going to have that conversation. And um, he was actually quite good with it. He was okay. About a month later, he died. And... um, it was a funny thing because we were both Rick and I were both in the room, and um, I had promised him I'd be there at the end. But I was a, I fell asleep, and Rick was there, and he woke me up and he said Richie's gone. And it was very good for Rick too to be there because he was so afraid of it, and yet he got a lot of strength from being there when Richie died. And I I think we were so tired at the end of it, we were happy to see him be peaceful.
1: Yeah. Were there, were there services that helped you at that time? Because I can imagine what a difficult time it is. And, you know, there must be many parents who have children with childhood cancers who ultimately have to face that fact that some children – are not going to make it and are going to pass away. And it must be the most difficult thing in the world to lose a child. But were there were there services that helped you, pastoral services, palliative care services, people or things that were particularly helpful for you that that helped you through that
2: difficult time? I can't say that there were specific services. There were Friends, I I think the people at the hospital became our new friends, and I come from a very large family, and of course, I did have that support system, but I think— The doctors and nurses who took care of him were so special to him, and we were sort of a unique situation at the time, and they really gave us a lot of TLC, and they were a great support system. And when we had a wake for Rich, they all came down, and we stayed in contact afterwards, and they were sort of my support system because they knew where I was coming from. We had a lot of good friends in New Canaan who were very wonderful and supportive at the time. And as I said, we're we're quite religious, but we didn't go to any support groups, or there wasn't any pastoral care in particular who helped us. Months later, we did go and speak to somebody who helped us as a couple, because mm-hmm. it's very stressful as a couple to imagine. go through this, because you don't always react the same way, and you don't understand that this person whom you love very much and whom you spent so much time with is. Totally reacting differently than you. So that was very, very hard. And I think it, we found somebody who was very good and helped us through that. And of course, we had four other children. We were so lucky. And it was something that. We used to try to keep everybody very close together because they were all suffering very much as well.
1: I was about to ask how did how did the the other children take it, because I can imagine with Rich being one of the older children um, how it must feel to have a younger sibling watch your older sibling pass away. It must have been very scary for them. How did they take it, and how did you help
2: them through that? Well, they each reacted very differently. Um, The oldest one, our oldest daughter, was most devastated because she was already a freshman in college when it happened. And it was very hard for her to be—she was in Pennsylvania, and it was very hard for her to be— even that far away from him when it all happened. And I wanted her to stay home for a while after Rich died in December, and she wanted to go back to school. I think she felt she could forget it a little bit more being at college. And then the younger ones really didn't understand for a while what the separation was going to be. They didn't understand not having their brother around, what it was going to mean for them. So it took a little longer, but they all reacted totally differently. Um, Some acted out more than others. Some were mad at me because, you know— it was just somebody to get angry at. So it, it's been a long journey, even now it's 30 years later. And it's still a journey, talking about it, figuring it out. Why did this happen? Why did that happen? Would would it be different today? What would Rich be like now? Would he have kids? Would he be married? Yeah. So you, unlike some families I've heard that try not to talk about the person who passed away, we talk about them all the time.
1: Yeah. And part of that might be part of your healing process. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. And and since that time, you wrote a book, uh, Day by Day.
2: Tell yes. us a little bit more about that. Well, after Rich died, I actually um, went to work at Yale. I became the coordinator of the Unrelated Donor Program in the early 90s. And I worked with a lot of families who had children who were ready to go for a bone marrow transplant. And I would see the siblings doing the same thing our children did, sitting in the room, being patient, coloring, waiting for the office visit to be over. And my heart really went out to them because I knew what it was like for them because I would often be dragging my younger ones up to Yale while Rich was being treated. And I thought I would begin to ask the siblings how it was for them. And I started, of course, with my four other children. And then we went out to children who had had siblings who had had lots of different illnesses from cancers to um, you know, uh, diabetes and brain tumors and all kinds of different illnesses. And it was very hard to get them to write stories, but some of them were very enthusiastic. And my goal was to have the book written by the siblings more than written by professionals. And some of the professionals said, well, we can write it really well. And I said, but it's not your story, it's the story of the siblings. So we got 40 um, children of varying ages to write stories. I did not edit them, I just put them together, but we clustered them according to the reactions that they were having, and there was a definite pattern there. And I wrote the entry to each of the grouping of chapters and the exit out of it. And I think it's a lovely story because there's a common theme there amongst the siblings, that although they were shocked and upset, that they found inner strength in dealing with these issues, and they were prepared for life, and they viewed their friendships and their relationships totally differently from their friends, which I think is a very interesting thing to learn from these children.
1: Yeah, and certainly, you know, their experience, I think, um, is, is one that needs to be captured. Tell us a little bit more about the other things that you've been doing since this journey. Um, you've started an art bag project. Tell us about that. Yes.
2: Well, the entire uh, found we started a foundation in memory of Rich with the help of our friends from New Canaan, and we used to have big fundraisers and do many different things, from providing fellowships at Yale to nursing scholarships to. Um, lectureships at Yale as well for the medical school. Aside from the book, personally, I started a project called Art Bags for Kids. And I want children who are sick and who can't go to school along with their siblings to be able to be remembered with art projects. I'm an artist. I love to paint. And I thought if we could provide art supplies to children who can't go back to school or at at home for the disability or illness of any sort, we would raise the funds, buy the art supplies, we've designed a bag, and we give out these bags of art supplies, which have about 15 different supplies in them from crayons to clay and rulers and paints, and we give them um, to the families through the hospitals, the Ronald McDonald houses, through hospice, through other organizations, even schools. Um, a couple of years ago, we did a big project with the New Haven school system. that They run a camp for disabled children, and we provided a lot of bags for them.
0: Christine and Richard Frisbee founded the Richard D. Frisbee III Foundation in memory of their son, Rich. If you have questions, the address is yale.edu and past editions of the program are available in audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. We hope you'll join us next week to learn more about the fight against cancer here on Connecticut Public Radio.